The scripture reading for today is Numbers 11, 1 through 15. You can open it up and read along if you want. It's page 129 in those leather-bound Bibles in the pews. Numbers 11. Now when the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, the Lord heard it and his anger was kindled. Then the fire of the Lord burned against them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. But the people cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire abated. So that place was called Tabera because the fire of the Lord burned against them. The rabble among them had a strong craving and the Israelites also wept again and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we used to eat in Egypt for nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its color was like the color of gum resin. The people went around and gathered it, ground it in mills or beat it in mortars, then boiled it in pots and made cakes out of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil when the dew fell on the camp at night the manna would fall with it moses heard the people weeping throughout their families all at the entrance of their tents then the lord became very angry and moses was displeased so moses said to the lord why have you treated your servant so badly why have i not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of this people on me Did I conceive these people? Did I give birth to them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a sucking child to the land that you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they come to me weeping and say, give us meat to eat. I am not able to carry all these people alone. They're too heavy. If this is the way you're going to treat me, Put me to death at once if I have found favor in your sight. And do not let me see this misery. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's such a good reading. Can we please? Oh, my goodness. The reading of scripture is quite performative. And uh, Ben, we know and love Ben, has also got some training in this world. So thank you for that. Hey everybody, um, Pastor John Jay, and I was out last week. Uh, we were traveling in Albuquerque, New Mexico, some of our staff, and so I need to say a word of thank you. I don't see uh, Ken and Sharon Fonger here, but if you were here last week, you heard Ken Fong preach. I got to listen to that sermon on Tuesday while I was skating through Old Town, which is the best way to listen to a sermon if you can't be here in person, uh, to add just like a slight element of terror to the process. Uh, but it was a really powerful message, and if you were unable to hear it, we have all of our messages online and podcasts, and you can listen to them there. But a thank you to Ken. If you see him in the next coming weeks, make sure you say thank you to him for stepping in in that way. All right, Numbers 11. What a strange passage. If you do have a Bible, you can open to it. Uh, we have everybody here today with us, and we are moving toward communion in our service. So we have a lot to cover This is our last Sunday to preach on Numbers for the next month, for the next three weeks or so. After this Sunday, we're going to take a break from Numbers and we're going to hit a Palm Sunday. So we'll be in one of those texts from Palm Sunday, then Easter Sunday. And then after that, we're going to have uh, what we would call like the second Sunday of Easter, another sermon on resurrection and the world that God has opened to us in the empty tomb. And then after that, we're going to jump back into Numbers because there's so much here. Uh, so today, last day for just a little bit. And uh, you heard the passage read. We're going we're gonna to talk a little bit further through it. Uh, the people are hungry and they're just now setting out on their journey. I want to orient us as to what's happening in the text, where we are in this story, because the book of Numbers is strange. If you've been reading along with us, it's this kind of intermixing of what we would call law commandments, not really a narrative story, but like, you know, lists of things you are and aren't supposed to do or census taking. And then also these stories or what we would call narrative, this kind of like, you know, setting conflict, climax, conclusion arcs. And this is all stitched together in a way that can feel kind of random unless you're reading it really, really closely 
and probably reading with other people who can help you see things that may not be quite so clear. Uh, but there are these elements in our story today. We have to go back to chapter 10 to really see them in their fullness. But there are two words that are at play in this passage. Uh, in chapter 10, we really arrive at what we would call the end of the first part of Numbers. Uh, so you could flip back a page and you can see this. There, there's actually some contention that the book of Numbers is not one book, but it's three books. And the place where these books get divided uh, is at the end of chapter 10. If you see verse 35 and 36, which is very similar to what Ken preached about last week, it says, whenever the ark set out, Moses would say, arise, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered and your foes flee before you. And whenever it came to rest, he would say, return, O Lord, of the 10,000 thousands of Israel. It's been said that that is its own little book in the midst of the book of Numbers. It's kind of like encapsulation of their history and their understanding of what it means to be with God. That God is active both in history, that God has rescued them, and that God is also active in eternity. That God has spoken to them in such a way that this message will reverberate out past these generations. So what happens right before verses 35 and 36? Uh, Moses and the people have... Uh, been at Sinai for quite a while, and Moses is trying to convince his father-in-law to go with them as they move toward this land promised to them. And the reason he wants his father-in-law to go with them is that his father-in-law knows the wilderness really well. So they kind of need like a scouting guide. And the way that Moses tries to convince this man to follow them, to travel with them, is by overloading his pleas with this top word here, good. That it would be good if you went with us because the land that we are going to is a really good land and our God is a very good God and this land will be flowing with all kinds of goodness. It is this overload of the word tov. Where do we know the word tov from? Genesis 1. This is the language of God's creation that God created and sought and it was tov. So Moses is keying into something in the wilderness that God and God's actions and God's provisions in God's future, all of these things are tov. And so, they get ready to set out on their journeys. But as soon as they take a step out, the word tov gets replaced with this word ra at the bottom, which is the language of evil, or of bitterness, or of struggle and trouble. And all of a sudden, the word ra just completely eclipses whatever tov was present before. So we are at this weird hinge moment in the story. And it looks a little bit like this. So you've got Egypt over here. And, and Egypt, just as a reminder, it's always good to know what's happening in these stories. Egypt is the land of their captivity. This is the space where they were held as slaves, uh, building storehouses, building all kinds of royal palaces. They were at the mercy of other oppressors and had no control over their fate. And so Moses is called by God to rescue the people and to bring them out. We call this the Exodus. The book of Exodus, which is the second book in our scriptures, is the story about this redemption, this liberation process. And so the people leave. It's like Exodus 14, 15 or so. They're heading out from Egypt. And they head toward... Sinai, which is the mountain of God. And this is the space where God showed up to Moses in the burning bush. This is the space where they are given the law. It is also the geography of God's intense presence. God is here in this place on this mountain. Because look at all that smoke and fire and lightning. It looks more like a volcano than it does just a mountain because it's the mountain of God. And so most of the book of Exodus takes place at Sinai. From like the chapters 20 or so on all the way through the end of the book is the people receiving the law, building God's home known as the tabernacle, and then God inhabiting it at the end of the book of Exodus. All of Leviticus is just another sort of synopsis of the laws given at Sinai. And then all of those first 10 chapters of Numbers also take place at Sinai. So they were in Egypt, they've traveled to this kind of waiting area where they make a covenant with God and they receive all of these promises and they say that we will keep this commandment, that we will, we will follow this God and, and have trust or faith in this God. And now we're like, what's happening in chapter 11 is it's, it's this motion away from Sinai. Uh, of the entire people. And they're all like really excited. Moses is all talking about Tove and Tove and Tove. And they get ready to set out. Have you seen those videos 
where people all line up at a starting line to take off for a race. I was watching one that I was going to show you, but I'd prefer just to, to show it to you with my body. Um, so it's all of these, I'm pretty sure it's high schoolers running track, and they all line up right for the starting line, and this is sort of like chapter 11 in Numbers. And uh, Perlman, would you just give like a clap, like the starting like the starting bell or the starting gun for the race, and I'll be the, ra- the runner to show you what it looks like when the people leave Sinai to head out, okay? Give it to me. You got There's this video of this person in high school, and that's exactly what she does. Like, right when the thing comes off, she hits her face on the ground, and she stands up, and she's, like, all disoriented, and she starts to move forward. This is Israel in chapter 11 of the book of Numbers. They are so excited to go, but they trip right out of the gate. And this becomes, like, their journey to this land that God promised to them is in some way predicated on their faithfulness to God's promises and their inability to believe in God's goodness along the way creates all kinds of pitfalls and traps and snares and they just can't stay on their feet. They can't stay on the road. That's what this story is like as they head out. And they thought it was supposed to just be a three-day trip. Moses tells his father-in-law, like, just come with us. It's just going to be like a long weekend. And then we'll be there, right? It's a three-hour tour, you said. Yeah, Gilligan's people. That's a good one. You should come to Thursday Bible study so you can share these things before this sermon. Uh, so there's all of this, like, anticipation and uh, not exactly understanding what lies ahead of them, that it's just going to be a three-day trip. But immediately when they set out, you heard Ben read it, the people start to grumble or complain. And the language is that they complain like right into the ear of God. So it's, it's imagine, you know, it's like the bullhorn thing and they're standing right next to the ear of the Lord and they are just yelling and whining and pitching a fit. The image in Numbers 11 and moving forward is of a young nation, not yet mature, always just pitching fits. And so they speak this complaint into God's ear the nature of their complaint is the language of raw. It doesn't say exactly what they, they are complaining about in this first part. It just says that they speak evil and God picks it up. Now, here's the thing about traveling with God in the wilderness. This is one of the things that they learned at Sinai, which is that this God is kinetic, is alive and active. So they have this really like reticent fear of God's presence on the mountain. Because what do they tell Moses? You go up to the mountain and you go talk to God and we're going to stay down here. Because word on the street is if we get too close to the mountain and we touch it and we're not in the right holy condition, we might die. So imagine you're this people who've had this healthy fear of God for quite a while now at Sinai. And then this God, zoop, right into the middle of your camp into this tent known as the tabernacle, and is moving with you this presence. You're hyper aware, you should be hyper aware, that this God, though God may be good, is not safe, is not contained in that tent. And if at some point you lose the plot of this story, you might find yourself in some danger. It's just in God's nature to be present in this really heavy, heavy is the language of glory, kind of way, like electricity. And you learn pretty young, like you don't touch the stove, you don't stick a knife in the socket, all things that I've done and most of you have done, because that stuff can hurt you. That's the knowledge that they carry with them in the wilderness. So when they speak raw into God's ear, this is what happens to the camp. This fire disperses to the edges and it kind of crisps up the ends, just enough to give them a good warning. It's understood as God's anger. God's anger or anyone's anger in the Hebrew scriptures is the language of heat, usually the heat of the nose. uh, And it burns the outside of the camp. The fire that was present on Sinai that gets pulled down into the camp in the tabernacle now all of a sudden breaks loose because of this evil speech and it begins to singe the exterior. That's the first part of this story. And that area right after Sinai gets a name. It's the place of the burning. These signposts are about to get really unfortunate. 
all the way from Sinai to the land of the promise. So this Tibera is the land where God burned the edges to a bit of a crisp. Then we get to the story that sort of is at the center of this chapter, which is the like pretty clear content of their complaint. It says that there was a rabble among them that had a strong craving, and the Israelites, they all start to complain again, only this time with just a little bit more precision. And they say, if only we had meat feet. I don't even want to read it because you read it so well. But it's this silly list of all the things they remember about Egypt. I found what I feel to be the perfect image for this. Uh, this is the, I don't know why this guy strikes me as somebody who complained about the buffet not having quite enough items on it. But that's what I thought of when I saw him. Uh, I think it's the tilted back nature of his beanie. And... So there is this memory that's going on, this remembering uh, that is quite broken about what Egypt was like. I'll read it for you again. If only we had meat to eat. We remember, zakar is the word in Hebrew, and remembering rightly is part of the project of God's people. Remember how I brought you out of that land of slavery with a strong hand and an outstretched arm? Remember, don't forget, tell this story to your kids and their kids and their kids. Right remembering reconstitutes the people as the people of God. But this is broken remembering. We ate fish. We remember. We used to eat it in Egypt for nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. By the way, in case you're like not a big fan of leeks and garlic, this is good food. And if you're in the wilderness, it's like super good food. Uh, so just know that they are, they are craving after something that like speaks to their deepest sort of belly hungers. This terrible remembering. But I love the way that the story gets told because, um, just side note. One of the beauties of our scripture, one of the reasons that I love to study it and to share it with you is it does not present a, what we would call like a hagiography of God and God's people. It does not just tell all of the good stuff. It doesn't read like most people's Facebook feeds. It's just the highlights of their life where everything works and everybody's best friends with everybody and nobody's kids ever have snot on their face and they always are impeccably dressed. Like that is not real life. And that is not the way the Bible tells its own story. The Bible has heavy doses of self-critique. It's the only reason to explain why the Bible would talk about Bathsheba, for instance. Like, why would you tell that story? David is your favorite king. You don't include any of the stuff David did wrong. But the Bible is honest about what it means to be human and about what it means to sometimes screw up. And so you have this sort of tongue-in-cheek reference to the way that the Israelites remembered the past. And then the narrator shifts, almost like an aside to the reader. So imagine you're kind of being whispered to at this point. And it says, uh, by the way, this manna that they're complaining about, the stuff that they're whining about and wishing they could have other kinds of food, this is what it was like. It was like coriander seed, and its color was like the color of gum resin. Again, I don't know if you feel like that's a good thing, but it's a good thing. It's like gum resin. The people went around and they gathered it. They ground it in mills or they beat it in mortars. They boiled it in pots and made cakes from it. The taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. The dew fell in the camp at the night and manna would fall with it. What this is the image of um, is like the perfect sort of food. Does anybody have, if you could have one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? You've thought about this before. This is like the classic question you ask at the dinner table. What's the meal? Bread. Yes. Specifically for me, uh, sourdough bread from Seed Bakery up on uh, Lake and Washington. It's like the best bread I've found in the city. Um, they will be a little grumpy when they give it to you because they're so proud of their bread that they are just this side of pretentious. But they've earned it because their bread is that good. Somebody else? Shredded wheat. Shredded, no. Shredded wheat. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's good. That's good. I have some... And peanut butter. And peanut Oh, my goodness. I'm allergic to peanut butter, so you and I can't be on the same desert island. Uh, someone said dumplings. Dumplings is a great kind of food because it's got to like a little bit of everything. Mine would have, of course, been pizza or more specifically pizza rolls before I knew what was in pizza rolls, which apparently is no food. But that was me. Somebody else? Just one more. 
What was yours? Potatoes. That's a great food and a staple of a diet for an entire people, right? Did somebody say cabbage? Cabbage. Oh, yeah. And you can ferment cabbage. You can eat it fresh. There's all of these different uses for it. Oh, kimchi is so good. Okay. Uh, What this narrator is telling us is that these people are being idiots. Uh, to crave anything other than manna. And granted, manna might have been eaten for like every day, every day, every day. But this stuff is amazing. You can make soup out of manna. I had some really good uh, mushroom and gouda soup last week. Really, really good. If you could also make bread out of that mushroom and gouda soup, it would be really good bread. You can make bread out of this manna. You can grind it up. You can, like, it sort of does everything. And they say that it tastes like cake baked with oil, which is good. I love oil. If you serve me fake butter, like I'm in a bad place. But if you give me a bunch of real salted butter, it's a really good day. My gumbo recipe has six cups of oil in it for a family of four. It is good. It is tove, super tove. Uh, That's what manna is like in its like deepest truth. So they remember terribly. They see what's in front of them and they speak evil of it. And then they look at what was true evil behind them. And they yearn for it. So it says after that. That the people begin wailing throughout the camp. And all of them come to the edge of their tents. And they all sort of turn their heads up to the heaven. And they just keep screaming about all of their problems. And this now. At first it was driving just God crazy. Now it's driving Moses crazy. And it says that Moses has this response for God. Why have you treated your servant so badly? A little bit before that, it says the Lord was angry and Moses was displeased. The language of displeasure is actually the language of raw. It says that God was angry and Moses's eyes were full of evil. Something's happening here to our beloved leader, Moses. And then he says to God, why are you treating me with such evilness, God? Uh Uh-oh. Can you feel the way that this community's anxiety and disposition is beginning to infect everyone? Right? At first, it's this rabble, this kind of mixed group of people that have been following the Israelites around. Then it's the entire nation, and all of them are outside. Even the leaders of the home are outside their tents screaming to God and to Moses. And now the leader gets infected with this anxiety. So he begins to cry to God. And all of that language of Tob from before, for Moses, is all replaced with the language of Ra or of evil. What Moses does is he has a nervous breakdown. And I don't say that with any kind of like joking that goes with it. If you've been in charge of a people before, whether it's an institution, whether it's an office, whether it's a family, you know at some point that like the speed at which those people mature, a dog, right? Y'all have, Leslie and Warren have a new dog named Rooney. And how much sleep have y'all had? Not much. Uh, You can go ask them. You can give them a hug later. You can say to them, we really appreciate that you have taken this dog in and are giving it love and affection. We will pray for your souls to survive this moment. Uh, Because it can feel a little bit like this. I've talked to new parents. I've been a new parent now twice. And when those babies won't cooperate, when they won't quit screaming, like that's why you have to watch that tape before you leave the hospital about not shaking babies. I didn't know when I was, whenever we had our baby and they gave us the tape, they said, don't, don't shake the baby. I'm like, you don't have to tell me not to shake the baby. We all know not to shake a baby. That's like, just, you get that when you're born that you don't shake babies. But when you have a baby or you have a Rooney, it's like really hard at some point when they won't stop, like not, don't, you tell yourself, don't shake the baby. Corey has to tell me like, you don't shake, oh, and you don't shake the baby either. That's Moses, like he's about to shake the baby. Why have you treated me with such evilness, God? And everything is evil. Everything. There's no more goodness in Moses' sight. He's so tired already. Taking this people out of Egypt, out of slavery, into redemption, into liberation, into a new relationship with this living God. Moving them toward the land of the promise. And right at the first steps away from this mountain of God, they stumble. And he's had it. When will these people grow up? And how long do I have to carry them? Moses assumes that it's all about 
his own efforts at this point. And so God says, like, listen, why don't you share some of this leadership with 70 others? I'll take some of the spirit and put it in them that's in you. Then you can all lift these people together. That sounds like a great plan. We call that the deacon body or all of the servants of God, the priesthood of all believers. But either way, Moses doesn't have to do it by himself. And then God says, these people want some meat. We're going to give them some meat. I'm going to use my breath, my spirit, my wind, and there's going to be this great wind that blows in some birds, these quails. And it says that this wind blows in and that quails fall as much as like a day's walk in either direction. I can walk really far in a day. And so could you imagine quails as far as you can walk in any one direction all the way around you? That sounds terrible. That's a lot of quail. I don't, I mean, I like quail just fine. It goes good in my gumbo with six cups of oil. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Six cups of oil makes anything. You can cook seagull in six cups of oil and it's going to taste just fine. So it says the people worked all day and night gathering. Lest anyone gathered more than at least ten omers. It's a ton of quail. They spread it out for themselves all around the camp. But then the text says, like, as soon as they take the first bite, have you ever eaten something that is so bad that the first bite makes you throw up? Like, you know, oh, I'm about to get food poisoning. If you're a smart person, you stop eating at that point, right? You're like, yeah, that mayonnaise smells bad and it's got flowers on top of it from the growth. Month old sushi. Yeah, maybe that's what this was. Have you seen those people that have started to cook chicken medium rare? It's like pink in the middle. Maybe that's what it was like. You know, as soon as you eat some pink chicken, something's going to go wrong. So as soon as they eat it, they begin to... The text is like really clear. As soon as it's like in their teeth, they begin to have all of those rumblings that move in both directions out of your body as quick as possible. By the way... By the way, I never at any point in seminary thought that I would do this motion to explain the Bible. <laughs> but it's like what happens. There's so much quail and it is, it is given to them out of their own demand for it. But it, the text says that they are struck with a great plague. Plagues are the language of Egypt. It's what happens when you are living in such deep contrast to the rhythms and way of God that that creation turns itself on you. So even food that was meant to sustain you might in fact poison you. That's the language of the plague. And so then they get another roadmap on the journey. This place is known as Kibroth Hata'ava, the place of the great craving. And there are a bunch of graves there. There's like some singed ground back at the other location with the fire. But this place has actual mortal consequences. So what's happening in this story? Even the way that we've retold it, you can start to get hints of what's going wrong in this company and in this camp. But I want to pull out just three phrases. And they all happen in that first little bit of speech from the nation. Three really evocative phrases to pull out and hold in front of us and see what they might show us. When I read scripture, I do the thing you're not supposed to do, which is say, like, how am I in the hero's seat? Do you ever do this? You read scripture and you're like, oh, yeah, 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 I feel a lot like Jesus in this story. And everything that's going wrong in the world is because of all of those other people. And the reason that I'm suffering is because of my holiness and the inability of the world to get on board with me. And so when I read a story, I think like, oh, I'm just like Moses, right? Me and God are trying to work it out. That's not the way that I find myself in this story. Like a few nights ago, I I realized that I came home and there was some kind of fish tacos, which you should never complain about. Immediately, I was like, can we have some quail? Like just a lot of quail and all of that, right? Because I've got desires and hungers and brokenness and I want to see if we can situate ourselves with this company who's on the move. They have just been freed from slavery. You just encountered the fire burning on the top of a mountain that is their new God. And now they are moving again into an unknown future in an unknown land. Uh, I don't want to fault them too much because all of those things are really ripe for high anxiety. And I can relate to that. So here's just a few of these phrases. 
when it says that they had a great craving, let's find where it is if you want to. It's in chapter 11, verse 4. The rabble among them had a strong craving. Hebrew does this every once in a while. It just doubles a word. This is a doubling the word for desire or craving. It could be translated as they desired desire. It's not even like their needs or wants had a thing. It was that they just wanted to want a thing. Have you ever gotten online and you don't actually need to buy anything, but you're like, I bet you Amazon knows what I want to buy. And so you get on and you find it. Sure enough, you desired to desire. And so you've got to go just kind of like search with your radar moving until you find the thing that might satiate that moment of does I get that. I understand that feeling. Just to crave a craving with no direction to it. it says that that's what spurs up in them. And then this is the way that they describe themselves. When they describe all of the goodness of Egypt. And they contrast it with all of the evil of God's provision of manna. It says that our souls were dried up. Our strength is gone. It may be the way that your translation reads. It's the language of nephesh, or soul, or thirst, or throat. That our very beings are withered. This wilderness that you've brought us to, God, it is like a dehydrator. And we are parched from the inside out. That's how they understand their condition. Say it again. Nafshenu. Yivesha. Yeah. Have you ever felt like this? I will say that that same feeling I just mentioned, I don't know what I want, but I think I want something. So I'm going to jump online or I'm just going to roll out to the store and figure out if I can satisfy this craving. When I do that over and over again, for sure, the feeling inside of me is a withered soul. Because it was actually like practice of consuming the thing that I really love, not the thing itself. And there are times, too, where your appetites are just so much. And so this need to just consume and to, to receive and to, to keep and to take is so maybe you won't be hungry anymore. Because hunger means you need, and to need means you're vulnerable. To be vulnerable is to not be in control of your own life. So their souls are dried up. And then here's what they say. Our souls are dried up because... What does the text say? Their strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. There's nothing at all. Here's what the text says. Ein Kohl. Not there's nothing, but there is not everything. And now we're starting to get to the crux of what it is that they understand about their world. Our souls are parched because we don't have absolutely everything that there is available to us. We are always hungry. We are always thirsty. We are always in need. We are always at the mercy of God's mercy. And this is exhausting. So could you give us enough meat and maybe some salt to preserve it and a few deep freezers so that we don't have to keep worrying every day? There is not for us everything. Now I'm really finding myself in the midst of this story. The way that they talk about Egypt and the way they talk about the manna is pretty important here too. They say, uh, we had all of the fish that we wanted and we had it for free for nothing. It cost us nothing. Also all of this produce. They're from Egypt and Egypt is the place of floods, usually yearly floods with the Nile. And, and the flooding was not always predictable. And so Egypt lived with this sense of scarcity. You never knew when a famine was going to show up. So they dug canals and irrigation tunnels and made sure to capture all of this rain. They built storehouses so they wouldn't have to worry about the unpredictability of nature. Whenever there was a ton of fish, it meant that there was a flood. And to remember Egypt as the place of plenty is to misunderstand what it meant to live under randomness all the time. You never knew when the rivers were going to flood out or when they were going to stay dry. You could have a bad year, a bad five years. We know what it's like to have drought. So they remember that there was always plenty in a land where there was never enough. 
That's a broken kind of memory. But if they take their first step out to move to the land of the promise, they have this hesitancy. They sound like a person about to get married a couple nights before their wedding. And they're like, oh, maybe, I don't know about this. Uh, I'm going to call my old girlfriend and see what she's up to. Right? Like, that's kind of what they're doing here. They pitch backwards. Back to Egypt. It may seem like these stories of their pilgrimage from slavery into their own people and nationhood and becoming the stability of being in the world and to be free in the world, that that may be the hardest part of this journey. How do you free an entire nation from a superpower? And how do you bring them through a land with no resources into a land that's already inhabited? Like that's trouble enough. But the the more difficult part of this path from Egypt to the promise is to get the people to believe that they are free. And that they can trust God. Just telling you, just telling them, like, God has, God has already acted in history. God has already rescued you. And in case you weren't sure, every morning God's provision will show up for you. And this God will even be viscerally and physically present in the cloud and the fire in your midst. All of that is to teach them that God is faithful and that they can be faithful to this God. But it's, it's very difficult for this first generation to get it. And so as soon as they step out, they crave to go back home. And that is this language of poor remembering, of craving of desire. We have a word for this. It's, it's called learned helplessness. Learned helplessness is this condition often affecting like trauma survivors or folks with PTSD where they've been involved with so much abuse over their lives that just by instinct will move back into pain and suffering. Don't believe that the world is good or that they deserve goodness. There is no tove, there is only raw. And so for folks, and, and some of us might be in this space of learned helplessness, life has been so difficult. You've been in a place like Egypt, known as the place of constraints and of squeezing and oppression for so long, that you don't deserve to take that step towards some good land or some good future. They've done these experiments to sort of test for learned helplessness uh, where they'll offer like a rat a shock, a random shock just every so often, make this rat move into this kind of place of deep suffering and trauma. And then they'll set the rat in a cage that's like half electrified and half not. And uh, you or I, we would stay on the side that doesn't shock us. That's my favorite thing to do is to not be shocked. If those are the options in life, shocked or not shocked, I'm choosing not shocked. But these rats who have been conditioned to suffer have been traumatized by their own experiences. They will just walk back over into that pain over and over again. There's even this other term that moves around with learned helplessness which is this transference of the past into the present. We could never trust the floods. We could never trust that Pharaoh was going to treat us well. We could never trust the future. So why is today any different? And why is this God any different? We have learned wisely to keep ourselves closed in, to expect pain. And so even when they beg for food, they are begging for a kind of broken remembering to visit them in the present. And plague comes with it because they must have forgotten what Egypt was really like. This right here is the harder work that God is doing in the wilderness with God's people. of Showing them over and over again that they can trust God. Here's the problem with manna, though. You only get enough for the day. They've tried this before. They were told, you grab enough for the day, but don't grab more than enough for the day, because there's going to be more tomorrow. But when they go out to pick it the first time, they grab a ton, right? You get as much manna as you can, and you put it in all the fridges in your house so that you have some for tomorrow and for next week. Uh, the manna rots. 
That's not the way that this economy works. Even though the wilderness is a place of sparseness, it is a place where there is enough. They don't really buy it, though. And so they start to resent this posture of reliance. We would like everything. And we would like everything now. And you might have some for us tomorrow or next week, but could we please, it's like getting the, winning the lottery and taking all the payout at once. It's that kind of thing. We'd like everything and we'd like it all today. They resent their reliance on God's economy in the wilderness. And again, I feel this. There's this language in the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is a really sad book. It's a book of grieving and of mourning, of loss. It's a great Lenten book, but I'm scared to preach on it for too long because we'll all get depressed. Uh, but there's this passage in chapter 3 where the people sort of try to summon up hope in what might be a future past all of this death and destruction. And the poet says uh, in Lamentations that God's mercies are what? New every morning. Yeah. God's mercies are new every morning, which sounds great, unless it sounds terrible. Because them being new every morning means you may not know about the next day. You just know about today. And have you ever felt like you could just use a month's worth of God to get you through whatever's about to happen? And if God's not going to give you everything you need to sustain you for the next month, year, or lifetime, then how are you going to trust this one little flicker in the dark that God might give you today? You start to resent this reliance on God's steady but not gratuitous presence. When Jesus prays on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth that is in heaven. Give us this day enough bread for this day. It's the language of manna. It's the language of new mercies every morning. We live in this constant space of need with God. It's just what it is. The wilderness is stripped of all kinds of familiar provisions. It is just the people in God and this weird food that God gives them and this weird way to get water from these rocks. And like, it's only that. There's nothing else to rely on. There is no In-N-Out burger. There is no Dairy Queen or whatever the places you look for on the side of the road. Nothing keeps in the fridge. It is just what God is doing for them today. And it is terrifying. You woke up this morning with enough of what you needed from God for this day. All that you needed to sustain you and a life lived towards God's goodness was given to you at the start of this day. But I have no idea what's coming tomorrow. And neither do you. And so it puts us in this posture of reliance. The posture that we assume here all the time with this is this open hands. That when we try to grasp it, right, like, this is all the quail I can carry today. That is different than you go to bed in the evening having eaten plenty for that day. And you open your hands and your heart for the next day's offer from God. It's hard to stay present in this day. Because this is the question that haunts me. What about tomorrow? or next week, or next month, or year, whenever it might be. How am I going to pay for kids to go to college? What happens when the car breaks down? Well, what happens when I get sick, or my spouse gets sick, or what happens whenever the big earthquake hits? Like, what What about tomorrow? And then all of that anxiety from tomorrow floods into today. And if only it was as good as it was yesterday. But God must have forgotten how good yesterday was. Because God did not provide enough for the next thousand years. Just enough for today. Jesus encounters this in the Sermon on the Mount. When he's holding the mantle of Moses, speaking to the people, 
and teaching them, just like the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, those first parts of the book of Number, giving them back their big story. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consume and where thieves can't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. The language of storing is the language of Egypt. It is this invitation to trust. And then the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, the whole body will be full of light. If the eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? The language of Moses' breakdown is the language of his vision becoming full of shadows, full of raw. Can you feel the way that Jesus is walking them back through their story? No one can serve two masters. You cannot be in Egypt and also be on the way to God's promise. You just can't be in two places at once. So Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. A slave will either hate the one and love the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Quail is mammon, is Egypt, is slavery, is yesterday. And then this. And this is what I want to leave you with. Because this is what Jesus says to those people who are afraid of tomorrow. Because we are afraid of tomorrow. Raise your hand if you are afraid of tomorrow. Just let's try to be honest with each other right now. This fear of the unknown. Of what God might do the next day and the day after that. Or what God might not do, so you have to do with your own strength and might. What you would have to collude with. What kind of future you would have to force to secure yourself. Jesus knows. And Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or your body, what you'll wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither reap nor sow or gather into barns that your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Can any of you by worrying out a single hour to the span of your life? Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and thrown into the oven tomorrow. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't worry. By the way, therefore, don't worry is offered not as an advice, but as a bit of Instruction. It's a command and it's an imperative. Don't worry saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? For it's the Gentiles who strive after all these things. Indeed, and here it is, your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But we don't have everything. God knows what we need. So then this is the desire. Strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you. That is the wilderness. It is a reorienting of their desire. It is a school for their affections and their hungers so that they would point them toward a place that might satisfy them. If you think it's quail, you're going to be in trouble and you're going to get real, real sick. If it is reliance on God whose mercies are new every morning, then you will be full to overflowing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is the language of Christ, who knows what it is to be hungry in the wild places. If you're so hungry, you should just turn this stone into bread. That is not all that my dry and parched soul needs. Friends, family, don't worry about tomorrow. That's like a lot easier said than done. It almost feels cliche to say it. And yet, to worry about tomorrow is to invite tomorrow's anxiety today. It is to remove the goodness of this day that God has given you, this toveness that is suffused throughout all of creation and replacing it with the evil, the promise of evil that exists always in the unknown future. And today, right now, this moment, your feet are settled in this space with friends and family, shoulder to shoulder with God's people. 
and you have everything that you need. As Jesus approaches the end of his life, moving toward the cross and is in Jerusalem, he gathers a group of his friends, his closest disciples in an upper room, and he tells them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. That language of double craving, they had a great craving and they cried out this evil. Jesus takes that speech and redeems it and says, I have had a great craving, a desire of desires to eat this meal with you, this Passover, the meal that they ate on the way out of Egypt. They ate while on the run. They ate while there were guns and tanks rolling toward them. They ate in defiance of that old story and the promise of a new one. And so that's what the invitation is now. As we move into a time of communion together. This meal is a school of desire to reorient your hearts and your hungers back toward their true source. There's not enough food here to satisfy you for the next week. But this table is always set before you. Not just once a month in church, but every time you set the food and the drink on the table with awareness that God is always present in the breaking of bread with those who would acknowledge God's good gifts. So I'm going to ask if the deacons would come forward at this time as we move toward a time of communion in the Lord's table. When Jesus is going to be handed over to suffering and to death. That he took bread. And breaking it, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. So take and eat. And as often as you do, remember me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So take and drink. As often as you do, remember me.